0: Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic.
1: Welcome to Dr. Brian Keating's rockin' New Year's Eve with with two of my good friends, Max Tegmark, Eric Weinstein. One question I was very curious to get both of your opinions about, and that's this issue of funding in physics. And I'm an experimentalist. You guys are theorists, uh, mostly. Eric says he's not a physicist. Please, Eric, you're an honorary physicist now. We will. That's mac- no, up to you guys. It's not Max up to me. me. Not an honorary
2: physicist. You're a real yeah, physicist. Yeah, he's a real physicist. He's doing physics best. things. Oh,
1: uh, what, what? I'm very honored. I'd
3: love to be. Thank you, guys. It's not for me to Okay, say. fine. Anyway,
1: you come down here. You're in my lab. You're a physicist. Anyway, we've talked about this, Eric, but I want to get Max's take on it. I feel theory is, in a sense, um, less costly. In other words, it's easier to make theories, just like it's easier. It's not easier intellectually, but it's there are more programs in the world than there are different types of computers. There's more programming languages than, than uh, phone uh, models, for example. So I make the analogy that theory is kind of like software, and experiments, like I do, are... Kind of like hardware, and and therefore it's very precious. But I get a lot of emails. I'm sure both of you guys do. Uh, you know, I've got this theory of the early universe. Uh, I need to, you know, or of grand unification. Can you help me prove it? And I'll share, you know, my Nobel Prize proceeds with you. I actually. Asked that of Adam Reese, and he said, "Yeah, how do you think I won the Nobel Prize in Physics?" Uh, <laughs> uh, but, but in reality, we there's there's so many there's a proliferation of it. Experiments are expensive. I myself, really, at the whim of Jim Simons, whose generosity has uh, granted me and my 300 colleagues on the Simons Observatory. The privilege of building an experiment which could potentially reveal evidence, more evidence, or some evidence uh, in some cases, for things like the multiverse or inflation. I want to ask you guys what do we need in physics uh, that the tech industry does so well in software? Do we need, I've, I had this idea of a Y Combinator you know, for physics? How do we get more, either more experiments to look at theories or use existing data from experiments, as Max has done, to investigate the consequences of theory? And and how do we raise money for it, uh, for physics as a whole? It's the, our crown jewel of civilization, many people feel. So Max, I'll start with you. Uh, how would you, if you were, you know, kind of uh, responsible for for raising funds, it, it seems extremely difficult. How do we do it to promote it for the net benefit of humanity.
2: There were really two separate questions in there, right? How shall we do the physics best given funding? And second, how should we get the funding? So for for the first part, how should we do it? I think uh, I really want to avoid trying to give some glib answer to it because it's a strength, not a weakness, that so many physicists around the world have different ideas of how it should be done. We want to try, look, not just all under the same lampposts, but search in many different ways with many different approaches. Uh, uh, For the second question, how you fund it, so you can have a healthy, diverse community of of people going after this great uh, mystery of how how the world works, right? There, I I think, um, yes, it's great that that, uh, there are philanthropists like Simon's and that will listen enough to scientists to actually fund them. But I actually think it's also a big mistake as a species if we um, don't create institutions and governments which support science. Mm. There have been a number of very nerdy economic studies that have showed very clearly that investing in basic science is the highest return on investment basically ever. And I mean, you're the expert who can push back on, on this, Eric, but like inventing the transistor, you know, just basic basic physics research um, has has benefited us so much in, in so many ways, you know, inventing calculus, you know, it didn't cost that much, <laughs> but it's been so, so valuable. So I think as a society, frankly, uh, we have to think, and this comes back to the whole media question again, you know, there are much more people who have heard about the Kardashians than who can name three living scientists, even let alone 20, right? Uh, we've we created a culture where scientists are not, not only are they not particularly known about or viewed as role models or heroes, but they're even very actively attacked by a, a lot of folks with power for whom what the scientific, what scientists are saying is inconvenient. Mm. And um, I really think that if we can, the, one of the best things we can do for science funding is to just create a less screwed up media landscape where we actually appreciate how much we benefit from scientific research, that governments will actually support it again, right? it, mm-hmm. it's it, It's pretty, we spent $2 billion a day or more in, this country alone on military, right? If you could get a puny, puny fraction of that into scientific research, we wouldn't even be having to have this conversation about how we get funding for science.
1: Eric has had an analogy to the military in calling you know, theoretical physics the intellectual equivalent of SEAL Team 6. So Eric, how would you fund physics or how do you, uh, how do you propose that we crack this particular nut?
3: There are four basic arguments. Um, The first one that I like the most uh, will fall flat, but it's Max's argument, which is um, so I'm not not I'm not ragging on Max. I'm saying he's got the best argument, but it just doesn't work. It's the greatest mystery in the world. You don't want to know how it ends. You're not interested in how the plot develops. That has to do with the fact that we have not brought people along. If you can't understand you know the mystery of chirality if you don't even know what chirality is and whether or not we're going to solve it is not going to be interesting to you it's like a murder mystery where we don't even tell people what this you know what the crime is so in part that's on us we should be making the greatest mystery uh, accessible to the public but it doesn't seem to work then there's the military argument do you really want do you have any idea how powerful your physics community is and how much it is accomplished for you and you want to you can have these guys for a pittance on permanent retainer to make sure that when something goes bump in the night, you've got the world's smartest people at your fingertips on speed dial. What is your effing problem that you're, that you're causing them to talk about funding? I never want to hear the two of you talk about funding again in your lives. It pains me that working physicists are constantly in this conversation. Let me keep going with the arguments, though. The next one is uh, you know, is an argument about the fact that physics has doomed you since the early 1950s, 52 to 54. We are go- We are in the valley of death. If we do not figure out a way to become a space faring civilization, you can kiss your indefinite future on this planet. Goodbye. Physicists without the wisdom of gods became as powerful as gods in the 1950s. And We do not have a long-term plan for civilization. We've had 75 years of unexplainable quiet following World War II because we dropped two physics devices uh, in Japan and scared the living shit out of every sentient being who's paying attention. And that is not going to hold. Mm. And so you are going to be in deep, deep trouble. But the last argument is probably the most useful one, and it's not one that I love, which is let's talk about your beautiful taxpayer dollars. They don't exist. Most of your taxpayer dollar is a physics dollar. And let me explain it. I'm going to start talking about some things that come out of physics, whether it's electron shells, whether it's the transistor and semiconductor, as Max just uh, talked about, and semiconductor inst- instructions that power your computers and the devices that you're watching this on, whether it's uh, the development of the electromagnetic spectrum, whether it's the World Wide Web that came out of CERN. Um, I'm going to keep going and going and going. And at the end, I'm going to say, how much is left of your beautiful taxpayer dollar that, uh, that you're so worried that you, you don't, why should you spend it on us? This is one of the reasons why I'm not accepting you guys calling me a physicist. <laughs> I, I don't necessarily even like your community all the time, but this is the most important intellectual community that has ever existed. And it is intellectually offensive in the highest order to have it try to explain what it has done for you. The old joke, which Janet Jackson made famous, is what have you done for me lately? That's the, that's the punchline. <laughs> Suck it up. Physics had signed the world's worst licensing deal in human history. Any time you, you want to revisit that. And say, what would be a fair price for what we've got I think we're repeating physics. it, we can, Wait, 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 wait. Just yeah, let, me, right. let me get to the end of the effing rant. Anytime you want to readdress how much physics has provided for you in that taxpayer dollar, and you want to sign a licensing agreement in arrears that covers the World Wide Web, the semiconductors, ke- chemistry, blah, 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 electromagnetic spectrum, be my guest, and you will be watching physicists flying around, with the, flying their kids around in multiple private jets, you will be you'll will, you will be their private chefs. Be quiet. Listen to what you've gotten from this community. It doesn't ask for much. Shut up, suck it up, and make sure that these people stop talking about funding, which is boring and it's also embarrassing. But if you want if you want to let the u s, uh, at the mer- be at the mercy of China, if you want it to live with nuclear weapons where we're not trying to get off this plan, if you want any of those things, it's because you're not paying attention. Please find somebody who is and talk about this locally with them until you understand the situation
1: a little bit better. All right, Max, Max, a million. Please, I'm going to put the million in there now. Max, go for you. Yeah, and
2: I just have to say, you know, my favorite movie of all time is, of course, the one about your life, Life of That's Brian. That's right. Python and I, we really should try to reenact this epic uh, <laughs> skit about what have the Romans ever done for us by saying
1: what is physics? What has physics ever done for
2: us? And you would be like so oh, embarrassing. Internet. Oh but it, yes, yes it but besides physics, besides the internet and
1: transistors, what has physics ever done? for It's it's go so.
2: On and put
1: it on. You should you guys should yeah, maybe quiet. we'll do that. But I mean, I'll get back. My wife doesn't, you know, much to her chagrin, can't go back and say, well, you know, when I married you, you were you know twenty pounds lighter, and I can't. Well, your cooking is so good, dear. No, I mean, you, we didn't sign a deal. There are no deals. So the question is, how do we go? forward? here. For, hold, hold, hold on, hold on. Yes, I I want to get to immigration also, Eric, because. We're talking to an immigrant, a dangerous immigrant right now. Uh, but but I want to I get to that in a sec, because I, I do think there there's a kernel of truth there. But let me just say this. We're making the exact same mistakes. It wasn't just the endless frontier. Qubits were invented by physicists. Guess who's using Qubits? Well, quantum computing is using Qubits. What is it doing? Max and I are going to talk later this year about uh, about artificial intelligence in some depth. We're making the same mistakes now. It's not only because of the endless frontier, Van Everbush, all these guys. It We are making It's built into who we are. We are not good because we don't get training in it, Eric. We never get training on the financial end of things that you have a preternatural ability uh, to do, perhaps, or Jim Simons does. I don't have any training in economics. Fine. You have a preternatural gift then. But uh, most of us don't. So the question is, what do we need? I I made this, this comment. Someone in the chat room is suggesting blockchain. I thought about that too. Is there any application, a Y Combinator for physics, where we put people that want to get the next qubit before it's too late. We're never going to back monitor. Forget it. We're never going to get a, a, a dollar for each email that was sent. That's not going to happen. But going forward, do we have to make them the same mistake that we made 45 times in the uh, 20th century alone?
3: I, I think I really don't want to have this conversation. I, I'll be honest with you. I'm embarrassed that we, we try to come up with reasons that we have to reason. Look, hey, public. You know who Einstein is. You know who Feynman is. You can't stop talking about them. Uh, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not justifying. Know, it, how do we go forward? Wait. Wait, wait. 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 I understand it. There are lots of things we can do if we have funding to make the the field exciting, inviting to get the the talent. We have to compete for talent with things that actually pay. And to have people constantly focused on their grants and all of this stuff, we have devitalized ourselves. I don't think we need Y Combinator or any of these things if we can save the system. I think Brian, what your secret question really is is assuming we can't save the system. How do we go to blockchain? How do we go to Y Combinator? How do we do this? And I'm not done because I'm concerned that you guys need friends who are not physicists to explain what theoretical physics has done in a new way, to people who are newly nervous about this planet. By the way, I forgot to throw in molecular biology, which was largely founded by who? Physicists. Physicists. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Right. It's so absurd that when we make the argument, it is as if we are insecure about what we have done. And I refuse to be insecure in front of the public, period. Do we need yeah.
1: more people, Max? I mean, is it, is it a lack of people that's holding back physics, finance? I'm just talking about funding right now. I mean, is, is Elon Musk fundamentally limited by the computing power that he has or the number of bright engineers that he has?
2: Look, I, I, many years ago, I, I promised myself to never, ever pity myself. And I, I think I've kept it, you know. I, I think it's important to remember that the, the physicists are not the only group on this planet who uh, maybe don't quite get the resources that they think they should have, that, right? There were more people who died of starvation this year than who died of COVID. And we don't even really read about it in the newspapers because for some, for some reason, this is how, how media works, right? Um, there were more people who died of tuberculosis this year and last year combined than have died of COVID this year. We don't hear about them either very much but because of the way the media works. So somehow, uh, I think we, the, the, what's happening in science, that science isn't, has trouble with getting funding and also that scientists have their opinions, not listened to very much is just a small symptom of a more broadly screwed up world. And, um, mm. Maybe sometimes, the, just like in physics, sometimes the easy way to solve a little problem is to go and find unified theory that higher, do it at a higher level. Maybe the easiest way to get science out of its screwed up situation is to just make society itself mm-hmm. a bit more, a bit less screwed up. I don't know what you think, Eric.
3: I think we could. What we could do is we could try. Look, let me say something about your community that, again, you can't say the reason that physics is so powerful is, is that it does something that no other community can easily do, which is that it, it gets the hybrid vigor of the dirt of the, if, if, if I go to Brian's lab where he's building telescopes, it is as gritty as you can possibly imagine to get clean results. You have to be welding things and soldering all this kind of stuff. On the other hand, when I look at what's behind Max on his uh, background, um, it is the purest, most beautiful stuff. It's like listening to Bach. It's just, it effectively uh, is this magical purity. And by getting the, you know, it's, it's like you're combining these two most extreme things. And there's something about this intellectual thought process that if I wanted to cure tuberculosis, believe me, I would actually go to physicists. If I wanted to cure problems in the economy, I would go to physicists. It's what physics does in training, if it works, and if we stop going the path, because I think physics training is becoming less valuable all the time, unfortunately, as we drift. But when physics works, the, the combination of purity and, and, and dirt And also the fact that so many problems are surprisingly simple once you get past the incredible hurdle needed to understand them. This is why the physics community is always at the scene of every great crime, uh, you know, for humanity. And so if we're stealing, you know, things away from, uh, from malaria uh, or, or famine or, or any things to make humans happier and better, you're always going to find physicists at the scene of the crime because there's something in the training that's fungible, which is why when I forgot molecular biology, can you imagine that your community more or less founded molecular biology and I can't even be bothered to remember to remember <laughs> it while I'm listing all the things we've done? <laughs> it's preposterous. And Because um, when you guys say it, it sounds like you, you're there with a begging bowl. I prefer to have friends say it for you. You need the Elon Musks, who almost became a physicist, the Mark Zuckerbergs, the Yuri Milners, whoever, to get together and say, hey, we need to agitate for our friends. These, If you guys do it, it won't work. We
1: need to do it from it's outside. It's called third-party praise. So let me give you some applause right there. Max, do you want to have a follow-up on that before we switch to another topic? If you guys have time. I don't know. How's your time going, guys? I love this, but it's up to you guys. I'm, I'm good for a, for a, for a lot right. more of Max's. Uh, I just want to remind people to go to Max's new project to check it out. It's called improvethenews.org. Go to Eric Weinstein's channel on YouTube. Look up the portal. Subscribe to the portal. Uh, and if you're enjoying this live stream, just hit the uh, thumbs up button. Stretch your thumbs. Don't get carpal tunnel syndrome. It kills 800 billion people a year. Uh, stretch your thumbs. Hit the subscribe button. Hit the like button if you're enjoying this conversation because I'm having such a good time with these incredible, brilliant uh, friends of mine that I'm privileged to spend the time with because of things like the internet that we love and hate. And I want to turn now back to Max. You have a quick follow-up on that and before we get to some some talkless and practical wisdom from the two of you?
2: Yeah. So just to share a final thought on this business about science, physics and science more broadly and, and how to get people to... Uh, the, how to get both get people listening more to it so that the world gets run in a more reasonable way. And also so that they don't, we don't have to do so much begging. Uh, I think, um, physicists, we, we, we have a certain arrogance actually, which, which has harmed us a lot. Uh, we, we forget that we're in a bubble and, uh, that we forget that there's actually a science of how you persuade people. There's actually a science of how to communicate and other people have studied that at great length. I would say that the average person who works making cigarette ads is much more scientific about the way they get their message out than the average physicist. And, and I think it comes not from stupidity on behalf of the physicist, but from arrogance and that somehow, no, we're not gonna stoop so low that we're gonna be scientific about how we communicate. <laughs> right. Uh, I was scientific about how we advocate. We have to get off our high horses. You know, if you get invaded by uh, Hitler's army, you shouldn't just say, "Well, you know, uh, tanks are immoral. We're going to fight them with swords." Mm-hmm. We have to be scientific also about standing up for ourselves and, and our ideas and, and and so forth. And I, I part of that. Another second mistake I think we make is forgetting that we live in a bubble and and spending much more time in fighting it in, in within our community of physicists, uh, or within having one science pitted against another science for a few more tax dollars, you know, losing sight of the fact that there's a tiny trickle of money that flows to all the sciences combined anyway, compared to what goes into g- generic fruits of, of, of lobby corporate lobbying and, and, and random waste, you know, so, so get out of our bubble again. We, we, if we look at the big picture, it's kind of pathetic, really, that you have physicists, biologists, chemists who together have <laughs> built up most of the wealth of the world and managed to be so incredibly navel gazing and bu- busy with infighting and old fashioned and how they communicate that they have to come begging for money and people
3: don't never, don't listen to them can we actually can i just that, tell a, yeah go for a it. quick story from uh from the malaria uh uh wars effectively there used to be a problem where you had a tiny budget for certain diseases that affected large numbers of people who didn't happen to live where the money was and um There's at some point in such a time. But, <laughs> right now yeah and uh but there was a change back, I guess, in the nineties, maybe eighties, nineties, where I remember Jeffrey Sachs taking my wife, Pia Milani onto a phone call. And she was trying to figure out how to allocate this tiny little budget. And his point to her was it's immoral for us to be trying to do this. What we need to do is to push the budget out and to stop accepting the constraint. And that's part of why I was a little bit resistant. I wasn't because I, Brian was making bad points about why Combinator. It's that I, I can't, I refuse to start thinking about this problem in earnest. Uh, at this level, this is such a clear mismatch that the first thing is to cure, um, our society wants to spend more money on science and it wants to spend less money on stupid stuff. And by the way, the really big problem, the really stupid thing that we did was around the SSC cancellation, the superconducting super collider, where the arrogance of the community did not play well in Washington as times had changed. And I highly recommend going back to like 1992, 93 and the congressional hearings and reading how pissed off Congress was that when they found the National Science Foundation lying and then they found the physicists buying too much art. For their offices at the the SSC and things like that. (laughs) So it's very important that we also do our part to say, look, hey, we are going to spend some money on art, beautiful buildings and things that make us happy. We have conferences in beautiful locations. Suck it up. It's a pit and stop complaining. On the other hand, know that we are serious as a heart attack when it comes to using this money for things that really matter. Sometimes all of that kind of luxury promotes the idea. I went to a a Max conference in Banff. It's one of the most beautiful places, but that facilitated, lots of people feeling that we could take the risks to do new things. Whereas if you're constantly keeping people at a minimal level of sustenance, they, you know, necessity is the mother of very mundane inventions, but luxury is also is often the father to, um, real freedom to consider bold new ideas. And I really do believe that in part, um, we we need to recognize that we pissed people off in the early 90s, and we need to reestablish trust, and we have the basis to do no, it. I anymore.
1: made that point to Barry Barish that had the SSC not been canceled by the venality of my fellow physicists, he would not have won the Nobel Prize that he left on the couch here, uh, because he only joined Eligo because the SSC was canceled. And then furthermore, uh, the Higgs boson, which was the primary uh, discovery f- of the Large Hadron Collider, resulted in two Nobel Prizes, uh, but not to any of the experimentalists. And I wonder, you guys are, are theorists. What? I, I made this joke with Eric. He always hits me when we're in person. When I make it. But I say, like, you know, do you really think of experimentalists as, like, You know, the joke is, uh, what do you call someone who hangs out with musicians? Well, you call him uh, a drummer. What do you call someone who hangs out with physicists? An experimentalist. Back in the 1900s, people used to say that Einstein was practicing Jewish physics. He was doing theoretical physics. Real men did Aryan physics. That was experimental physics. Oh, how times have changed. There's a few Jews who have won the Nobel Prize, and some of whom are fellow experimentalists, uh, like Ray Weiss like Barry Barish and others. But the question is, uh, what, you know, to what extent do you feel like there is a, you know, a, um, a difference of, of viewpoint as to the importance of experimental scientists versus, I I mean, I don't think someone you know, Bardeen looked at the equations of quantum mechanics and said, let me invent the transistor, which will then power all these cell phones. I, I feel like a lot of these discoveries are serendipitous. Uh, in theory, it's kind of naturally serendipitous, whereas experimentalists, we kind of need to know what we're looking for before we set out. What do you think of the difference between theoretical physics, experimental physics, Max, uh, first, and then Eric, uh, in terms of the difference and similarities that they may engender?
2: I, I think the experimental physicists and theoretical physicists have always had a, a love-hate relationship with one another, uh, wh- where deep down there was a very deep respect both ways. And it's been a very, very healthy relationship as well, where experimentalists have uh, discovered new things, which po- po- posed mysteries for theorists to chew on. And, and theorists have sometimes taken giant leaps of and, and, and motivated experiments that wouldn't otherwise have done. It's quite obvious to me that if you had, if you eliminated either theoretical physics or experimental physics, the field as a whole would have gone almost nowhere. Mm-hmm.
3: I think, you know, Brian, there are three sort of categories of experiments, experiments that I don't find particularly exciting, but I'm glad somebody did them. Then there's experiments like the cobalt 60 experiment that showed that the universe was left, right, asymmetric, where the effect is so astounding and the the courage needed to say, I believe that this crazy suggestion is worth trying, um, where I admire the courage as well as the skill. And the establishing it is so profound that um, I I think it's, you know, top level stuff. And then there's like weird stuff. Uh, I remember, I think the Nobel Prize for the um, discovery of the particles or the fields that uh, communicate the weak force or the W and Z particles. I remember the description of stochastic cooling, I think, which was what Simon Vandermeer had, had contributed where it was like, we're going to take uh, a box where there are particles bouncing around and we're going to keep nudging the box in precise ways so that it absorbs the energy from the individual particles and so that they will all get cooled by virtue of the fact that we can nudge this thing. I mean, it was the most mind-blowing description. And part of what I hope to be helping Brian do is to distinguish that, There's an experiment that has to be done. It was done. We're happy that it happened. There was an experiment that showed something absolutely astounding. It's it's a different sort of a thing which took courage. And then there's experiments that look like theoretical physics but are even better sometimes because they're actually physically manifested, Mm. uh, like stochastic cooling. And in part, I think that when we call it experiment, we're not doing enough to talk about the taxonomy of different things that us – Theoretically minded people find amazing about what the guys who actually get in gals uh, who get you know down and dirty uh, doing the actual nuts and bolts soldering and gluing. Yeah.
1: Yeah, when you think about, though, you know, who does a scientist – if you say the word scientist uh, to an individual, they'll think of Stephen Hawking, Albert Einstein, Carl Sagan. It's rare, if anybody, Richard Feynman, they don't think about experimentalists. And yet, uh, you know, something like in my book, Losing the Nobel Prize, I make this point, like 70% of Nobel Prizes have gone to experimentalists since 1940. And from my perspective – you know, we need the kind of Brian Greens, Max Tegmarks, Eric Weinstein's of experimental physics to communicate how freaking cool it is because you can actually get something done in a day. And as, Let us help. as Albert Einstein, uh, sorry, Albert Michelson, the first uh, one of the first Americans to win the Nobel Prize, he said that experiments are like puzzles. The more you do, the better you get, and every time you do a puzzle, it's like the Rubik's cube. Uh, I'm trying to get the inventor of the Rubik's cube on my podcast. I'll let you know if I can get that done. But you Vafa, uh, you're a mutual friend of you guys, he was on the show. He wrote a book called "Puzzles to Unro- Unlock the Universe," unravel the universe. And I asked him, "What do you what would you rather solve? A mystery?" or a puzzle? And it was a question I asked Freeman Dyson, the late great Freeman Dyson on this very show as well. What animates you guys? Is it the puzzle solving that I like to do, like working on my car, building a telescope, where I know there's a solution? Maybe I'm not a good enough experimentalist to get it done, but someone better than me can get it done? Or a mystery that perhaps has no answer? Max, let's start with you. What do you prefer most in life? Mysteries that may not be solvable, or puzzles which have a solution that you can uh, complete?
2: I love both. I mean, not, it not being solvable doesn't faze me. I'd much rather have uh, you know, the questions I can't answer than answers I can't question. Ew,
1: we're going to go there on God in a minute, but keep
2: going. That yeah. is actually uh-huh. very much my mantra as a scientist. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I also feel that um, the whole distinction between experimentalist and physicist, the experimentalist <laughs> and theorist, Freudian slip, it, it is kind of... Uh, outdated and dissolving. First of all, you have a lot of people who uh, work at the interface, like phenomenologists who try to connect the two. Then you have people like me. I spent five years building a radio telescope, and I spent a lot of time working with you and others on experimental data, but I'm mostly a theorist. And then you have entirely new er different areas, which are neither experiment or theory. In astronomy, Right? they're very Astronomers are very clear to say, I am an observer, not an experimentalist. And, uh, in, uh, and now we have a new field, computational yeah, physics, a- which clearly is here with us to stay. You know, if someone writes, if someone devotes 10 years of their career to do amazing supercomputer simulations and developing new algorithms for a lattice QCD with the goal, ultimately, of, of computing the whole periodic table from first principles, right, that's not theory. It's not experiment. It's a little bit like being an observer where you observe inside. It's it's, uh, frankly a new field. So I think uh, we're probably better off not obsessing too much about artificial boundaries between Mm -hmm. are you this kind of physicist or that kind of physicist. Yeah, I Uh, I should uh,
1: say before Eric, you respond, but uh, I would say that experimentalists don't have to be able to create new theories, but we better understand the theories that others have proposed well enough that we can make beautiful experiments. You know, our friend Sabina Hassenfelder, she says, you know, beauty is driving physics astray. I disagree with her vehemently when she came on my interview, because I said all experiments are beautiful. Even the ugly, you know, chiclet and uh, chewing gum and coat hanger ones, because they're all teasing out something that is going to reveal something about the universe, whether it th- be through a null result, as I'm um, used used to coming up with uh or an actual positive detection these experiments have to have a certain symmetry beauty and naturalness about them in order to succeed eric what do you think about the uh this this you know rather provocative i I think
3: brian you've been on this and and uh you've actually been very influential in the evolution of my thinking about this i hadn't realized the extent to which the theorists I've been so focused on the fact that we seem to have appointed about six or seven people to talk to the public on behalf of all physics that I was sort of not realizing that all of them tend to come from the theory camp and they all tend to come with varying amounts of gee whiz, which is partially good and partially not good. I'm not entirely against woo and gee whiz, but you need to do it in the right proportion. I think partially what it has to do with is the shock if, you know, um, for those of us who program computers now and again, sometimes you'll have a theory a theory, and then you'll instantiate it inside of the computer. And when the graphic actually shows you what your equations have been saying, you have this kind of surprise. You may have written the code. You may have come up with the equations. You may have designed everything, but the computer reflects you back to you. And you're like, whoa, it works. It's real. I mean, I think I was maybe almost the first, I think I may have been the first person to actually draw inside of a computer, a three dimensional model of parallel translation that applies um, in economics. Hmm. And when I saw it come up, I was just astounded. Hmm. And I think it has a different beauty to it. I wish more theorists were doing some experiment, more experimentalists. And let me say the negative thing for the experimentalists, you guys cannot afford to be so light on the theory. If you're going to actually check our work, you need to speak the language of people whose work you're – I'm very worried that there's going to be a translation error and you're going to think that you're understanding what we're talking about with tensors and differential forms and bundles. But in fact, we need people who go back and forth. So I'm worried about the two cultures of C.P. Snow dividing experimentalists from theorists. And in part, that's <laughs> on the experimentalists. They're, they're trying to get by with antiquated language yeah. as if uh, you know, tensors are still thing, uh, collections of numbers that transform according to rules, which is not a good way of describing them in the slightest. Um, with that said, I think that there are a small number of very interesting places where you see something that sounds like a theory that's actually experimental. If you look at Watson and Crick's dis, um, discovery of the three dimensional structure of the double helix, they went through a triple helix that they built a model of, which was an embarrassment to them. Mm-hmm. They also went to a situation in which um, th- they come up with the double helix after the, the parts are machined and delivered to, their, to their, uh, the room in which they're working. In some sense, the double helix was an experimental result And if I can pick out another one, in the late 50s, there was this really anomalous thing, which I still can't quite figure out. You guys can inform me. The bohm Aronoff effect was the last really significant discovery around plain old classical sort of electromagnetism. Now, there may be a beam and, and, and some quantum interference and stuff like that. But we didn't understand that the electromagnetic field strength, which we thought was the real object, is not really the primary object. The, and potential. the real primary object is something called a vector potential. When it turned out that we had gotten to the late 50s without even understanding the most beautiful of our classical field theories in its totality, it indicated to me that um, what is the danger of having the strict division of labor in the pin factory of science where you don't have enough people who are able to go back and forth? And I really look back to those guys like Fermi, uh, you know, who are great calculators, Beta, who is a great calculator, people who did both of these things. And at a minimum, we need to be um getting these people in the same rooms. And I have to be honest with you, there's a way in which I think theory has gone into a worse direction, even though I'm closer to it, because there's been so little in fundamental physics that's been propelling theory forward, except at the level of the framework. So we now have a much better idea of the framework of the theory. We haven't been idle, but we found very little that's profoundly new coming from the theory side since the standard model was put into rough uh, final form uh, as it stayed since the yeah. in the early 70s
1: and max what do you make of the fact that you know everyone sort of uh, sacrifices themselves as Lenny Susskind calls it at the, they become popper atsy, you know they become overwhelmed by this uh, this notion of falsifiability first proposed in a demarcation criteria of Karl Popper great philosopher I haven't I've told this to Eric but I want to say it to you I feel we physicists have math envy you know Freud called you know Know, most people having certain t- other kinds of I envy. Mean, people talk about physics envy, but actually, I think we have math envy as physicists, because at least mathematicians know that there are formal limitations in the uh, consistency of their mathematical formalisms. In physics. We're left with Popper as just like falsifiability, and I've made this case many times with only with Nobel Prize winners because I, I feel like their reputation is so stellar. But but then many of them don't want to you know risk losing their the sheen on their gilded graven image of Alfred Nobel. But anyway, I want to ask you uh, the fact that there's so much attention given to wormholes, given to black hole singularities, given to the Big Bang itself given to your favorite, one of your favorite subjects, the multiverse? Is this why you're going into like more kind of hardcore or practical or experimental science? Because we can't ever see any of those things, let alone know that they're real. So why is it that, you know, that there's so many physicists that are overwhelmed with the notion of Popper, but yet are practicing and appealing to the public, the gee whiz, mind of God is inside the singular, you know, Why, why is that?
2: I guess there's a spectrum of questions in there. Yes. One of them is uh, Popper, yay or nay? i yeah. promised to address that. Yes. A, a separate question is where do we draw the line between science, on one hand, and bullshit on on the other? <laughs> yes. Uh, and um, I would first of all say, so I'm going to say something which might sound paradoxical. I'm going to defend Popper but attack a lot of the people who claim that uh, in talking about black hole interiors and multiverses are bullshit and, and saying they misunderstood Popper. So what Popper says is that you know if, if, I, if I tell you about a theory and you say, Max, give me one possible experiment that could prove you wrong and I can't come up with anything, then this is the scientific theory. I stand by that, I, I think that's perfectly fair. And, um, and in fact, there was a fascinating debate about evolution once between Bill Nye and someone else and Bill Nye asked the other guy if he could name one thing that would persuade him that creationism was wrong and he couldn't. So, so there Popper would come down on, on Bill Nye's side. That said though, I still think many people have misunderstood Popper and t- can wake too crude view on it. Well, we, well, we test in science our theories. Uh, So, for example, if you have an argument, you and Eric, about what's really happening inside of a black hole, you can never go there and measure it and then come back and do a podcast about it, right? Does that mean it's all BS? No, it does not mean that. Uh, What you're actually testing instead is whether general relativity is correct as it stands, because general relativity predicts a lot of things you can never test directly with experiments, like exactly what happens inside the event horizon, but it also predicts a lot of things you can test, like the perihelion shift of Mercury, like the bending of starlight by the sun, like the hulse Taylor pulsar, like the expanding universe, and, and so many other things that we study with great precision right now, including again, the, the patterns on your beach ball behind you there, the micro background, right? And in, so in science, we have the situation that if you have, you, you, can, you cannot dismiss general relativity, as being unscientific BS, because it is testable. So if you, if you fail many times to falsify it, Popper style, then you have to start taking seriously all its predictions, even its predictions that you cannot directly experimentally test, like what happens inside of black holes. And this is exactly the mistake I think people make now, analogously, in other areas. They'll take, for example, Alan Guth and um, Relinde and others' theory of inflation, and they will acknowledge that this is a scientific theory because it makes a lot of predictions. It makes some predictions even for the micro background. It's had many t- chances they get falsified and it's survived so far. So we have to start taking seriously also some of its other predictions that we cannot test, which is that space goes on far beyond that beach ball, probably so far beyond that it's worth calling other regions parallel universes, for instance. Uh, so is that non-scientific? No, it's not. Inflation is a scientific theory. Uh, and a uh, scientific theory, you take it or leave it. It's all or nothing. Like, you cannot say, oh, you can go into Starbucks and say, yeah, I want this coffee, but without the caffeine in it. That's fine. But you cannot say, I want general relativity. I'm just going to opt out of the black hole prediction.
3: <laughs> yeah, Matt, I'm in Eric, such go a ahead. different place, I think. I, fe- I fear that I'm going to just put my, my foot in it, but I'm going to fall back on my wingman, Dirac. I don't know if you guys have heard of him. (laughs) Um, he says, uh, a couple of things that are widely quoted. Uh, it is more important to have beauty in one's equations than to have them fit experiment. Now that's clearly the sound of a, of a crazy person in some sense. Um, the, the, um, he, he goes on to say, if there's not complete agreement between the results of one's work and experiment, one should not allow oneself to be too discouraged. So why is this? Well, it's because he lived this. And one of the things that I'm really against is the promotion of the sanitized version of science with the scientific method and popper, uh, not coming remotely close to how science is actually done. So we, we so like, Max just talked about the anomalous uh, precession of the perihelion of mercury. Um, The problem is if I recall correctly, when Einstein first formulated this, he formulated it with Grossman in 1913 and then he reformulated it alone and put some specificity to it. In a weird way, the 1913 thing was better than his first go at being concrete because he said the Ricci tensor is equal to the, to the stuff in the universe. And that equation doesn't even make sense because it's not it doesn't have a particular um, a, equation that it has to satisfy work out. But it was good enough, if I recall correctly, to explain the, prece- the anomalous precession. As a result, you can have a wrong theory that works with experiment, and then you can have the reverse situation, which is uh, where the um, Dirac was really getting this. He says, I might tell you the story I learned from Schrodinger of how when he first got the idea for his equation, the one that Max held up, he immediately applied it to the behavior of the electron and the hydrogen atom, that is the simplest possible system. And he got results that did not agree with experiment. This disagreement arose because at the time it was not known that the electron has a spin. And that, of course, was a great disappointment to Schrodinger and it caused him to abandon the work for months. Then he noticed that if he applied the theory in a more appropriate way, not taking into account the refinements required by uh, relativity to this rough approximation, his work was in agreement with the experiment. He published this first paper. He goes on to say that this wrong equation that Max held up is not, in fact, the equation that Schrodinger had to begin with, which is now called the Klein-Gordon e- equation. So he didn't have the Dirac equation, which is relativistic, or the Klein-Gordon. He came up with a a wrong equation. It's
2: called the Klein-Gordon equation because it was invented by Schrodinger. And (laughs) it pains me to admit this because Klein was in Sweden.
3: (laughs) (laughs) But But, But the point that I'm trying to get at here is you can have situations where you get agreement with experiment and your theory is wrong. You can have other situations where your theory is right, but in a stupid way, you don't have the instantiation right. And the message that I want to send, which is, of course, going to be treated as heresy by all of the uh, people who are, you know, this, the, this, the, the people who have this energy that there is a demarcation problem that you can solve at skept, our skeptic friends and our rationalist friends. No, that's not how this game works. Mm. The real way this works is that the true scientific method, right? The scientific method is the radio edit of great science. And the way that great science works is every which way humans have ever come up with reliable understanding of their environment and their world, which may include dreams, it may include taking LSD. In the case of Carrie Mullis, I don't know. It, it involves so many weird, crazy things that I'm. I'm just. I guess I'm sort of sad that we keep trying to uh, neuter and, and 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 emasculate this subject when, in fact, it's the messiness and the fact that you don't know whether agreement with the experiment is a death knell, or or in fact, it's a false Mm. uh, indication that you're on on the right path. I think that we just need to grow up and grow out of both uh, emphatic Popperianism, usually misinstantiated because Popper wasn't as dumb as people claim, and we also have to stop fetishizing the scientific method. Um, When we have the Kukulis of the world running around figuring out benzene, uh, you know, so many weird things contribute to our uh, understanding of, re- of reliable information in science. We've got to be more honest that there is no such thing mm-hmm. as the scientific method, the way you learn about it in school.
2: Yeah, uh, I, I think the way it's taught in school is is frankly <laughs> kind of silly. Uh, the way I see it, uh, my first postdoc mentor, Georg Raffelt, once said something that's always stuck with me, which is it's better to be wrong in an interesting way than to be right in a boring way. Hmm. So, for example, Schrodinger's first failed hydrogen atom, you know, Einstein's first failed general relativity formulation, they were wrong in an interesting way. And being wrong in an interesting way is very, very valuable for physics. Yeah. Uh, second, I feel, and I thought that was a bit of the sentiment of what you were saying, there, Eric, is you know, Humility is, has to be at the core of, of science, right? Not only should we be humble and acknowledge that everything we believe in might be wrong, even our pet theory that we just published, but we should actively seek out ways in which we can actually be proven wrong. It's kind of the opposite of a politician, right, who avoids saying anything or sticking their neck out so yeah. that they can be proven wrong, we should aspire to, to. we should really aspire to live dangerously. Mm. We should have the mindset that the more we force ourselves to live dangerously and have our theories potentially be proven wrong, right, the more likely we are to learn something interesting. Yeah,
1: So yeah, absolutely. just
3: so on that front, if yeah. you think about Paul uh, Linus Pauling racing Watson and Crick for the double helix, both of them came up with a triple helix, with the sugar phosphate backbone on the interior with the nucleotides sticking out, uh, if I recall correctly. So there are certain mistakes that may be canonical on our way towards the truth, and that you actually have to go through the valley of error in order to, 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 to scale the peaks of success and insight. And what is absolutely important about this, and it goes back to the funding conversation, unfortunately, is that you need to have a tolerant enough community that c- people can afford to tell the truth and continue in their quests without worry that by stumbling, they will immediately, you know, there's this old thing in the, in the concentration camps, of, of, uh, in death camps, where if, if you coughed, you were gone. And so, you know, at some level, this zero tolerance for error is something that really bothers me. A lot of these great old stories, people made error after error after error on their path to becoming the people who, who put things in final form. And I think part of what's going on is, is that the one thing I'm going to quibble with, I loved what Max just said, I think it was great, but I, I do have a, a, a caveat, unfortunately, because I, I think he's going to say it better than I, than I can. We have to stop fetishizing humility. Um, because clearly, this is not a trait that most people associate with the theoretical physics community, to say the least. Yeah. what really is going on is that physicists and great scientists need two separate facilities. they need absolute pathological self confidence and arrogance. You need to be able apparently Eric Lander used to call in like a hundred biologists mathematicians and say, "Tell me what 's wrong with my idea." they would tell him what's wrong with his idea. He'd say, thank you. I was worried that there was something really wrong, but none of you came up with it. Uh, you know, so can you, can can you tell a hundred of the smartest people that you value their opinion? You're all wrong. Yes, that's absolutely important. You have to have the arrogance and you have to have the humility, which is what Max was saying. The real trick, which we don't explain to people is regulated expression of arrogance and humility. Just the way, like with the operon and the pajama experiment, sometimes you're expressing something, sometimes you're repressing it. And I really think that the part of the problem is is that some of the people who are incredibly modest and incredibly humble, what we need to do is to get them hyped up on their own brilliance. Other people who are insufferable and don't um, really seem to... uh, I think it's clear enough. I think that the basic point is arrogant people need more humility. Humble people often need more self-confidence. And we we can't keep extolling one virtue over the other.
1: (laughs) So on that note, I do want to take some questions we've had, uh, couple hundred dollars worth, maybe even a thousand dollars worth, which is going to go to your gents' favorite charities. We're going to split that down the middle. Uh, I want to thank people uh, for asking these wonderful questions. Let's do a couple of quick ones, and then I want to get into uh, a couple of topics that I'm interested in, just because how often do I get to get my two good buddies together in a council of the wise? Uh, I want to ask... First of all, a question about aliens, which has come in from one of my uh, one of my listeners. But I want to twist it to something I'm interested in that Max has thought about a lot, which is the so-called simulation hypothesis. I had on Jill Tarter this this uh, uh, past week, or last week, uh, talking about the signal from Proxima Centauri that uh, was supposedly picked up. She was rather dubious about that. Uh, but this question of whether or not we exist as the as the LIFE 2.0, and whether or not LIFE 2.0 ever becomes fully like LIFE 3.0, is my question. Uh, what are your current thoughts, Max, about the simulation hypothesis? First, maybe state with Bolstrom you know, meant by this, uh, you know, you've, you've talked about this a lot. But how much credulity should we have in this? And then I'm going to ask Eric uh, about the ethics and the uh, morality of a simulatable uh, civilization. So in what ways would they not be or be like gods? First, Max, simulation hypothesis, your thoughts, current status.
2: All right. So let me first explain Bostrom's simulation argument and then explain why I think it's flawed. (laughs) So uh, the basic argument starts by saying, well, if if, if uh, we're a blob of quarks and electrons and our conscious minds are ultimately all about information processing, right, then surely if you were actually simulated in a computer so that the information processing was exactly the same, maybe you're in, suppose you were in some future super advanced computer game or whatever, you wouldn't know the difference, of course. So maybe we are in a simulation. Uh, and then Bostrom goes on to say, well, in, in this universe of ours, uh, it's likely that eventually artificial intelligence will advance and and we're gonna help life spread into much of our observable universe. And there's gonna be massive amounts of computations and simulations and perhaps way more simulated minds than real minds. And therefore, if you're a random mind having these experiences, you are simulated. So you are probably living in a simulation. He's more careful on that and lists all the caveats also. So there's nothing flawed with what he wrote, Uh, but uh, I I think the the conclusion that we are probably living in a simulation is false. And, And to see where it starts to go wrong, just note that suppose you buy it and you say, okay, we are all in a simulation now, having this conversation. We can make the same argument all over again. That, oh, in our simulated universe, there are going to be all these future doubly simulated minds and there're much more of them so we're probably double simulated right and then we can repeat and say <laughs> actually no we're triple oh quadruply oh we're simulated google flex times yes. no no flex, flex 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 times and you start to get a sinking feeling <laughs> that there's something rotten here uh, and and there is yes uh, the, the the big mistake is that uh, it doesn't matter at all uh, how many, whether they're more simulated or real minds in in the, the the universe that we think we're in, what matters is what's going on in the basement universe, right? Where maybe there is the original simulation. And, and if we're simulated, we have no clue what that universe is actually like. Mm-hmm. So we should have an open mind about this as anything else. Yep. I, but I would definitely not uh, jump on the bandwagon and say, oh, we're all simulated. On the other hand... If you're still worried that maybe you are simulated, the, the conclusion is pretty obvious. You should live a really interesting life so that the simulators wow. don't get bored and shut you down.
1: Tegmark's wager, uh, an update of Pascal. Uh, Eric, what are your thoughts about simulation hypothesis? Is it uh, valid? And what, if any, obligations would a master simulator have to his denizens or her? Den- or its denizens, let's be honest?
3: It's very interesting to me that when we talk, of, so there's the simulation hypothesis and also the rogue AI, AGI hypothesis, and we don't really connect these. So as the simulators, we are terrified of creating the golem, the Frankenstein monster that comes after us and uh, and outcompetes us because we are like ants to its godlike intelligence. And on the other hand, if we are the simulated, we're terribly frightened that we are going to have the plug pulled out, which these are the same stories in some sense, but we're on both sides of them and we're telling them from the point of view of we're scared in both cases. I never hear us say, is it ethical to pull the plug uh, on the AGI because what are, you know, what are, are we, do we have the right to uh, kill something off that may intend to intend to kill us? And uh, what are our obligations to to the simulators? So I think that our narcissism is clearly on display in the simulation hypothesis. I do think, though, that in part, what it does is it takes the loss of religion that we associate with Nietzsche and the inability to construct God. And to reconstruct it inside of the one sector of the economy that still seems to be behaving as if it doesn't, didn't know that everything came crashing down in the early seventies, which is the computation communication sector. And so weirdly, like if you look at what's happened in physics, we've all moved towards information, you know, maybe the university is made of information. Well, it seems pretty clear that this has to do with the fact that Silicon Valley or which is now evaporating and reconstituting in Miami and Austin or whatever, um, that, that this, Silicon Valley ethos has pervaded our philosophical thinking, our scientific thinking. Maybe it's an attempt to get money out of Mark Zuckerberg. It's unclear. But I do think that it's very unlikely in my, to my way of thinking, given the important of, importance of the calculus and therefore the continuum in most things that we do, that it, it would be harder to simulate this world than to build it. And I think that that's one of the reasons why I'm not very excited about the simulation hypothesis, because the easiest way to simulate it is to construct the actual thing that you're simulating. And I think in that framework, we just haven't thought uh, enough about it, and, and we're sort of reaching for the most obvious uh, hypotheses. The last thing I wanted to say is that if we stop calling it the simulation, and started calling it the effective theory. We, we, we distinguish it now, thanks to you guys uh, in renormalization theory, that uh, higher-level theories that aren't true we now call effective because they're still useful. We haven't dispensed with Newton. We just call him effective rather than fundamental. So we don't know what a fundamental theory actually looks like, but if you imagine that the classical world is in some sense like a simulation, we have a quantum existence, and the quantum existence is hidden from us, and we we stumble around as mesoscale phenomena in this classical world that doesn't really exist, but kind of washes out of the quantum. Uh, If you wanted a hypothesis, I think that that would be kind of a really interesting thing. Does that get to you philosophically? If it doesn't excite you, maybe the idea is that you're really here for the science fiction rather than the science. I don't know.
1: Yeah, that is something I've thought about. Also, yeah, do we, uh, if we, right before we pull the plug on Max's uh, super AI simulator, is it going to scream? And what would that do to us? Is it like cooking lobsters? Which I I don't know anything about that. But uh, Max, do you want to have a quick follow-up before we start to wind down? Or are we good to go with that? Yeah, sure. Sure.
2: I think uh, there's been some amount of self self criticism uh, here. So, uh, in that spirit, uh, let's be honest. We are not that ethical as a species, even though we love patting ourselves on our head and and pretending we are right. We um, have done a lot of horrible things in history, and even today, we're still not that ethical, right? Uh, Why? Why else is it that we've talked so little about the people who died of starvation in this? Year of 2020 and of tuberculosis, then we have talked about the fewer people who died of COVID. Right? It's because those people were poor, and we didn't feel our ethics applied to them as much as the richer people who who died of COVID-19. That's the the, the sad truth. Why do we talk so much less about the suffering of factory-farmed chickens and pigs than than you know than we talked about? <laughs> good-looking actresses or whatever, it's because again, we're not maybe <laughs> as ethical as we'd like to be. But being sort of shifting a little bit to optimism, I think we should aspire, certainly to be, become more ethical. And uh, maybe uh, and I, no, I would say actually by far the greatest ethical dilemma is what we're going to make of the whole cosmic future because you know, on one hand, we have enough technology now that we could drive all life on this, we could drive humanity entirely extinct if we wanted to. Which would perhaps wipe out, you know Enormous amounts of positive experiences in life for billions of years throughout much of our universe, right? Or we could get our act together and and help life spread from this planet and flourish Beyond the wildest dreams of our ancestors for billions of years in this amazing future and this to me is the ultimate ethical dilemma. What are we going to do? Are we going to you know, squander this future or are we going to seize it? And I would like to end with, with Freeman Dyson, whom you just mentioned here, because he was not only an intellectual hero of mine, but it was so inspiring that, you know, he would h- hang out and have lunch with us lowly mortal postdocs, you know, back when I lived in New Jersey. And, and he used to point out that look, you know. You ain't seen nothing yet. You know, life today in a, our universe, as far as we can tell, is still this, this puny perturbation on what looks mostly dead, right? And uh, yet intelligence has this power to completely transform the physical world. Look what how intelligence has transformed Earth since it showed up. It's, and with artificial intelligence, it, it could even happen quite soon that much of what we see out there starts to come alive and and our universe starts to sort of really wake up and, and, and fulfill its potential i find it incredibly inspiring to think about how we here in our lifetime on our little spinning ball in space you know actually have so much influence over the whole future of ethics and and yeah positive experiences in the cosmos maybe and that's the reason honestly honestly that i spend so much of my time on the Future Life Institute and and other efforts to try to make sure that we steer the technology towards making the future awesome.
3: Let me just ask you one question about that. Assuming that Einstein more or less holds into whatever the fundamental theory is and that the constraints that we've come to live with under Einsteinian relativity like the speed of light um, continue to hold and assume that uh, humans have to live under that do you think given how far other good stuff is away from us that realistically we are going to be able to figure out any way of bootstrapping our way someplace interesting out of our relatively isolated solar system with very few habitable surfaces
2: yes absolutely i actually geeked out on that in a big way in chapter six of my book life 3.0 where i just asked the question what if we shift from being having our technology limited by our own um, intelligence to instead having our technology limited by the laws of physics, how much better could we do? And yes, you're completely right. There's still limits. And presumably there's still a speed limit, speed of light, etc., etc. And because of dark energy, there's a limit to how many atoms we can ever access out there. But the limits are just mind-blowingly far above what we have now. Right? So first of all, going to other solar systems as a walk in the park, and with our artificial intelligence, going to other galaxies is also a walk in the park. You can, uh, and I put, I had a lot of fun making just some nerdy plots to see, you know, how how much of our cosmos can we actually get to. There are galaxies that you can see right now at very high redshift, where sadly, if our current understanding of cosmology is true, it's it's all see but not touch, because they they're, they're we're going away from us so fast at an accelerating rate that no technology will get us there, but um, a significant fraction of the beach ball behind uh, Brian Keating is in play for us, and I would really hate it if our earth origining life spends its entire future just on this little spinning ball
3: i can't then, stand to think about it and, and the, 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 I, I can't I personally want to get off of this and, 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 and visit the neighborhood. But my feeling about this is that I'm hoping against hope that we have a way of going against Einstein. And I have to say that even now, I I can go against many, many people. But if it's Dirac and Einstein, I really, really don't like it. Um, Thanks. Okay. Thanks for that answer.
1: Yeah. Well, guys, this has been just a thrilling thing for me. I always say on my channel, you know, Sam Harris has this thought experiment. You know, if you could go into a chamber and there was a button you could push, and it would instantly teleport you to Mars, and you'd survive and come back. And the only catch is, right before you push it, they have to kill you, so you don't have uh, two copies of Brian Keating lying around. Uh, would you push that button? And a lot of people would. Uh, and uh, you know, I thought about it, and I said, you know what? Actually, I have that ability to teleport right now and it's called my children and and not only my children uh but of biological nature uh uh, but also my ideological children those that i influence and i want to just thank you two for being uh influences to me uh, ideological uh, I'll call you guys cousins because you're not that much older than me if if so at all but uh, I want to thank you guys for going into the impossible it's now champagne o'clock where Max lives actually I've been on champagne this whole day uh, already since the crack of 8 I want to just remind people uh, go and look at improvethenews.org it is one of the most fun and delightful pieces of actionable uh, intelligence that you can use to make 2021 a better year than 2020 I had So much fun with it. Uh, Please go to Eric Weinstein's channel on YouTube and also subscribe to the portal. Please uh, stay tuned for this uh, to this channel. We're going to have Deepak Chopra in conversation with Frank Wilczek, facilitated by me. Uh, That was pretty fun. And uh, I'm going to have both of them individually as well, as well as John Preskill is coming up not too uh, long from now. And I had Giant Narlikar who is a giant of cosmology, as Max will know. was one of the fathers of the steady state universe. I think it's important to listen to our elders. As I've listened to you guys who are barely older than me in this universe, please like and subscribe to the Brian Keating, Dr. Brian Keating's YouTube channel. Also, Into the Impossible on iTunes, wherever you get it, the portal, Max Tegmark's universe. It's one of the most delightful places in this corner of the multiverse. And now I can say with quite a good deal of confidence that I'm closer to knowing the Mind of God. Thank you, boys. Happy 2021. Shana Tova, everybody out there. I wish it'd be a he- healthy, happy, safe uh, New Year for everybody. Shana Tova. Thanks for having us. <laughs> Thank you. And got nyt or. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed it will be. Bye, guys. If you
0: enjoyed this episode of Into the Impossible with Professor Brian Keating, please subscribe, comment, share, and review. Watch on YouTube, listen on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or Stitcher. We appreciate hearing from you and are always open to your suggestions for future episodes. For more information and to sign up for Professor Keating's mailing list, go to briankeating.com. Follow Professor Keating on Medium and Twitter at Dr. Brian Keating, Dr. Brian Keating. For more information on the Clark Center, go to imagination.ucsd.edu. Into the Impossible is a production of the Arthur C. Clark Center for Human Imagination at the University of California, San Diego, in the Division of Physical Sciences. Eric Veery, Director. Brian Keating, Co-Director. Produced by Brian Keating and Stuart Volko.